You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Alistair Reynolds. His newest novel is On the Steel Breeze. Thanks for joining me, Al. Hi, Rick. Uh, so, tell us about this book. Well, this is the, the second volume in a trilogy which I'm calling Poseidon's Children. That's the overall arching name for the thing. I've never done a trilogy before. I've written books that have been linked, and I've done sort of books that can be regarded as sort of trilogy after the fact. but. Nothing was ever written as a trilogy with that intention, whereas this one was. I, I knew I was going into a trilogy before I before I wrote the first word. Was that in the contract? It was discussed at contractual level, yes. Uh-huh. And uh, and uh, the contract made it possible because I had, I think, for I, when I'd been given three book deals, I don't think I would have ever felt confident about, should we say, using that entire three book deal up on one project mm-hmm. in a trilogy. But because I had this 10-book deal, I felt, well, you know, within the scope of that 10-book deal, a trilogy is only part of it, so I can give it a go. And it felt it felt right, and it felt like a good time to take on that challenge. I think everyone, many, you know, I think a lot of writers feel like it's something they want to go at at some point in their career, even if the, you, even if you do another one, never do another one. I probably will never do another one, but it, but I don't regret having a go at it. The long shadow yeah. of J.R.R. Yes, Tolkien. yeah. <laughs> but the second the second book, I mean, it was. The, the, the notion at the start was that the trilogy was going to be this geometrically progressing thing where the second book was going to span a thousand years and then the third book was going to span 10,000. 10, I still really like that. I just wasn't clever enough to make it work. So I started plotting the second book and it became clear that I couldn't get the story to work across a thousand years. Um, it, it, it's still about 200 years of action in that book. But it um, it begins a little bit, uh, maybe about two hundred years after the the events of the first book, where where um, we've skipped a generation, I think, where we're two generations on from the characters of the first book. Although because we're in the future, and you have sort of lo- longevity therapies and things like that, then there is a little bit of overlap between some of the some some of the characters, some of the minor characters in the first book do do appear in the second book, to to add to the to the um, sense of continuity. But the principal characters are all new in the second book, and they uh, they they go off and have a you know a, a fairly different sort of sort of adventure, I'd say. Well, now one of the things that's interesting in this book is you're dealing with the consequences of the technologies you created in the first book. Yes, and this offers you a couple of challenges. One, in terms as a science fiction writer, trying to evolve your own technologies, and I. You do a great job of creating new science, but also in terms of the literary uh, challenge of trying to tell a new story based on these new characters. So talk about the kind of clash between those two. Well, uh, you just bash your head against the wall until you find a way through it, I suppose. Um, (laughs) I had, yes, um, without giving too much away, those technologies are unleashed upon the world at the end of the first book that have obvious consequences. And one of the consequences is by by the um, by the start of the second book, we, we find that society has gained the capability to leave the solar system, and we have this um, kind of migration in progress where gigantic spaceships are making their very slow way across interstellar space towards 
a planet that appears habitable based on telescope data, but there also appears to be some sort of alien structure on the surface of the planet, which is another incentive to go there because they want to find out what, 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 what this alien structure really is. So all that's kind of different to the first book. It's a sort of different motivator to the story. But I also wanted... One of the things I really enjoyed about the first book was that so much of it was set on Earth, and I thought, I don't want to throw that away in the second book, although the natural arc of the story demands that much of the action take place in interstellar space and in this other solar system. I really felt strongly that I wanted to find a way to tell an Earth-bound story as well, so I cooked up this idea that the central character would actually be uh, a kind of clone, so she actually exists in three cloned versions of herself. And the reason she's done this is because she basically she can't decide whether to leave home or not. So she said, well, why don't, why, why don't I clone myself? And then one of me gets to go on this exciting interstellar expedition, which will take hundreds of years, has an adventure. Another one of me will do something else that's equally bold, whereas the third one of me gets to stay at home and just enjoy life back on Earth. And for me, that then allowed the story to hop between the, the heads of these characters. So... The, the, the character who's on the spaceship um, makes some, a series of discoveries that require her to re-establish contact with a version of herself back on Earth. And then the, then the sort of narrative can then flip between the two. So I, I got my, you know, I was pleased that I was able to return to Earth then within the, within the scope of the story. Uh, something that you do in this book and you also do in the other book, and we hadn't talked about this about much, but you do a great job of like making some kind of science fiction uh, staples seem really realistic and bring them home and I, I thought you did a great job of you know dealing with the clone problem <laughs> so yeah, talk about yeah. that you that's that was I thought very clever and, and fun to read to see somebody do that well the way to for me the way to think about clones was not to think about clones if you like because as, as soon as you start thinking about how would you actually clone a human being you start getting into really boring biology to me I mean it's just not that interesting mm -hmm. And the ethical questions about cloning have been done to death in science fiction a million times. It's dull, dull, dull. I mean, I, I, I overstate the case, but it, it's ground that's been covered, shall we say. Mm -hmm. uh, I just don't, I'm just not interested in that. I just want, the, I, all I want is a woman that exists in three bodies. So she, for the sake of shorthand, they call it cloning, but it's not really cloning. It's just a, bio, a biotechnological process that takes one person, sort of melts them down into a kind of soup. <laughs> and out of this soup, three, three people come with the same, you know, the same memories that, as, the, as one of them had when they went in it. So I call it cloning. Well, they call it quorum bite. Was it duplication or triplication in the book? But I, I think I'm, I'm careful because you, you get people who say, oh, that's not really how cloning would work. No, that's why I'm not saying it's cloning, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying it's a 23rd century technology that they have, that they can do this end of story it's not no, the laws of physics are not being broken here they have infinite control of molecular biology they have nanotechnology they can do anything to a human cell so they can do this let's move on <laughs> <laughs> well i think that that's i think uh the admirable aspect of your fiction is to uh, let the technology uh lend itself to the characterization rather than forcing the characters to be controlled by the technology. The other thing is that, give, depending on their roles in the stories, my, my characters may not be interested in the technology. To them, it's just a tool, mm -hmm. a process that they don't need to understand. 
Well, and that's very much the case with Chico in the book. She's not a scientist. Uh, we, we meet three different iterations of Chico, but none of them are scientists. You know, one of them is a kind of politician trying to find room on this spaceship for some more elephants. The one, the one back on Earth is uh, trying to write a biography of the family history. Um, they're not scientists, and they, 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 they move in a world where there, there are lots of advanced technologies, but they're, they're sort of transparent and, you know, in, in the same way that uh, you know, most people don't really need to know what goes on in a, you know, in a Wi-Fi router. You, know, you, you just trust that the technology works. It could be magic in some respects, but as long as it works, you don't care. Yeah, and that's how they feel about cloning in, the, in this book and the, the transfer of memories, which is not—it's not sort of telepathy. It's a—it's a—it's a you know a process involving implants and recording of brain states and encoding and transmission of information. But it's all—you know—it's all a series of plausible steps. But to the characters, it doesn't matter. It's what what matters is whether it works or not. Well, that's one thing too, though I like about your stuff is that you manages to use the science fact technique of hand waving in a manner that is always seems realistic you know we don't have faster than light travel I mean you you approach everything with a manner that seems pretty grounded in the characters everyday realities and grows out of that yes um, I mean there is some hand waving in it and you know if you if you were to look in, in detail at the physics of the star drives even though they don't have faster light travel it's still pretty unlikely I mean, you know, it's still pretty, it's a big ask mm -hmm. to accelerate a ship the size of an asteroid to 8% of the speed of light. Or you know, that's still pretty difficult. But, I, you know, there are sort of different categories of impossible, if you ask me. You know, it's like faster than light travel is definitely impossible. Mm -hmm. Traveling close to the speed of light is probably, probably impossible. But it's not excluded by the laws of physics. And then you get down to sort of lesser shades of gray, you know. Where things are kind of probably un probably unlikable, but who knows what we might, you know, with a few breakthroughs in physics, what we might be able to do. But I do, I, I, I resist getting into really detailed nuts and bolts explanations of how things work. I think, a, I'm not interested. As a reader, I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. I'm far more interested in the characters' emotional reactions to the world in which they in which they move. Well, and that's that's what I think uh, keeps your books uh, more appealing. Then you know, even though I think that to a degree you're considered a hard science fiction writer, I don't really see that. I'm not quite sure how I fit in that hole anyway. I, yeah. you know, but I think it's a the, the the sort of because I'm from a scientific background. I think there's a bit of a given that I must be a hard SF writer. But you know, my first short story was was compared. You know, when, when the editor bought it, he said, "Oh yeah, it reminds me strongly of Philip K. Dick." And, I, and I've, I've always seen myself as a writer with a bit of a broader remit than just hard SF. Uh -huh. And, I, and the, the I other thing I don't like about hard SF is it puts all sorts of expectations on, on you as a writer. You know, that you are going to fact check every detail. And that, you know, and that if, if someone comes and, you know, goes through your work, they'll find that all the orbital mechanics compute to the last decimal place. Well, I'm not interested in that. I'm sorry. I, and I'm, <laughs> I no. could do it, but it's completely pointless. I mean... No, it's a you waste of time. We, we, what we get in your book is a, is a fabulous adventure on Venus. And I, yeah. I love uh, the way you, you deal with Venus. That's a, that's a lot of fun. Again, uh, in terms of dealing with the, the planetary romance and keeping things in our yeah. solar system, 
we have Mars and Venus. I have to ask, were you a Edgar, a Edgar Rice Burroughs fan? No, I, I, I've read nothing nothing by Rice Burroughs at all. No, I should do, but no, I have I mean, the reason well, I, I do... I don't know that you should, but... Yeah, no, I, I just thought Venus is... Um, it's, it, I mean, I've had an idea for um, a story set on Venus at the back of my head for about 10 years, um, which, would involve, which was going to involve, um, you know, huge pressure suits on the surface of Venus... And I, I even tried writing a screenplay that involved a prison break on V. Well, it, none of these things ever came to fruition. But I always had that itch, which was that there's a really good action scene waiting to be written on the, about something horrible happening on the surface of Venus. So the second book is sort of, I thought, yeah, I really want to go to Venus <laughs> in the second book. So that's why we get all the Venus stuff in there. And it is sort of true, you know, I, the, what I tell you about the surface conditions on Venus is all accurate. Now, whether you could construct a suit that could withstand those conditions for as long as I do and w move and work in the same way that, that happens in the story, that's, that's not a question I'm really interested in answering. You know? Well, no, no, nor do you need to, because no. what, what it does is uh, it serves two purposes. Is we see our characters grow, we, and, yeah. and we see uh, Chinya, that's a kind of a turning point for her as the yes. character. Yes. And, and also, it's a turning point for the plot in the story. It is. Well. It is a very much a turning point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, once as you take this uh, novel further out into space, yes. and further out into the realms of speculation, um, one of the things I think you do a great job of is world building um, a, a fu the future that's that's been created by the future in your previous novel and that's an interesting uh, bit of world building so you talk about like um, you may not have to fact check with reality but you do probably have to fact check I'm thinking with your previous novel you do and also as I, I think as, as I was saying earlier um, the first book presents a kind of quasi utopian future the second book is a bit of a critique of it and I, I hope people get that in mm -hmm. that there's, you know, one of the things we find out in the second book is actually kind of universal surveillance that would have its downsides, particularly if something malign got into the system. It wouldn't actually be such a good thing. Um, and in, in the third book, again, is kind of builds on that. And but actually, by the time we get into the third book, the whole thing has collapsed. And they're kind of rebuilding it, you know, as best they can. But yes, uh, I, well, I look, I look on that as um, a challenge to actually take the implied world of, of, of an earlier novel and then build on it and then try and think about the way social changes really happen. If anything, there's a, the, I, th I think within, within the, the progression from the first book to the second book, there's a kind of technological stasis which was deliberate. Um, and so, and so one or two reviewers said, oh, you know, he's, you know, he's run out of ideas because the world of the 23rd century feels exactly like the world of the 21st century in this book or something like that. But that, that was very deliberate because I wanted this sense that there were larger forces holding back technological development for various reasons that become sort of spoilery. Right. But I didn't want um, a dramatic difference in the technology between Blue Remembered Earth and On the Steel Breeze. It's only 200 years, but it's 200 years where they kind of... They're taking um, a kind of collective breather, if you like. They're, you know, they're just kind of still assimilating the consequences of, of the first book. Well, you have an interesting uh, insight into physics in this book. In, in the, uh, 
effect it has on one, on one of the characters in the previous book. And I thought that was a, that was a lot of fun, and that was an interesting uh, little sidebar. It was purely a, um, an unanticipated sidebar. Um, I had the, yeah, obviously a character from the first book shows up in the second book, which I wasn't really planning. And we find out that she's yeah, taken an interest in the, in the physics of, of the first book. But I, I, I like the idea that if you, had, if you lived for 150 years, you could do more than one thing with your life. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be a great artist and then be a great scientist. Whereas now we kind of, you kind of get an all of all or nothing option now. No, we don't. You can't. You're lucky if you do one great thing in your life. In, 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 but uh, I can't. I like the sort of. I love the, the, the notion of the Renaissance man. You know, and it, you know, people only lived to be thirty and forty in Renaissance times, whatever it was. But they still did all these amazing things. You know, like Leonardo da Vinci, and Michelangelo, and Francis Bacon. They just had this incredible kaleidoscope of different things going on in their heads and they, they, they moved seamlessly between the arts and the sciences and I, I wanted my characters to have something of that same freedom because of the the benefit of the longer lives but also sort of breaking down of orthodoxies so that's why we find I think in you know Sunday the artist has become a scientist and then we also find out that Jeffrey the scientist has become an artist so they sort of swap poles and you know well, they're each doing what they ever used to do and one of the things too, I think that you're really good at, um, is taking some of the implications of the cyberpunk world and the, the cyberpunk genre, and playing them with them throughout the two books um, in a manner that extracts them from that genre and kind of brings it into just like mainstream fiction ideas. I think that um, the you your notions of artificial intelligence and also the way we deal with computers and the ubiquitous of networking yeah. um, are things that um, are in a sense happening now and yes. in the in the classic idea of science fiction is a, no matter how far you throw it into the future is really about what's happening right now it is and I, I mean as much as I was influenced by cyberpunk when it when it happened I've tried to just sort of put it all aside I think since then and really i mean one of the things the cyberpunk said i think is very important is that they they were complaining that a lot of the science fiction of their time was really just a regurgitation of the science fiction that had come before so science fiction playing with ideas that it it has itself originated rather than looking out into the real world and so what what is really happening in laboratories you know we write all these stories about robots taking over the world and killing people and whatever but what 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 are really happening what is really happening with robotics and i thought i don't i don't want to make that mistake of just Roomba. Least, yeah well i so <laughs> i thought again it was one of those things that like the idea that the moon hadn't been really featuring in science fiction too much i thought robotics is definitely no one's writing about robot robots at the moment and this was 2008 you know robots were completely abandoned trope within science fiction but i've always found robots really interesting i thought i want to get loads of robotics into this book um ubiquitous robotics i want robots robots everywhere um and i want to think about artificial intelligence but i want to do it not not based on what some other science fiction writer thinks about it but what's what's really going on so Again, you just get get hold of Scientific American and you try and read about real ideas in you know neuroscience and neural networks and try and get them into the story on some level, 
rather than rehashing old stuff. And that's how you keep science fiction fresh, and that's what the cyberpunks were doing. That's what Robert Heinlein did in 1940s, was bring real ideas into science fiction rather than just sort of recycling all the tired old stuff of the 30s. And I think we have um, you know, an obligation to do that every now and again. You know, we should do it all the time, really. But it, it's, it's vital to the continued vitality of science fiction that it, that it pays attention to what's going on outside in the real world. Well, it's vital to the uh, to literary fiction that it pays attention to yes. what's going on in yeah. the liter in the outside world and what's going on in the outside world is technology plays an increasing part in our lives. I mean, you yeah. can't escape the internet. No, no, you can't. But you you would think you could from a lot of fiction. It's right. kind of written in a sort of pre-internet sort of phase. But I think a lot of the better um, literary writers, uh, many of them really do have. A, a keener sense of the way things these are going, these things are going than a lot of science fiction writers these days. You know, I mean, um, you know, that's the way it is. I mean, someone like David Mitchell, sort of, you know, pretty switched on guy. I think, you know, he's pretty, pretty clued up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, interested in the future in a way that sometimes science fiction isn't. I mean, for all for all that it's a literature of the future, it's incredibly, at times, retrogressive and backward looking. Which drives me up the wall, but <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of it, you know, that's just a, that's a generalization. Well, now having written two books in this series, and you know, you you knew you were going to write a trilogy. Yeah. Uh, tell us uh, what can you tell us about the third book and just developing it out of the other two. The third book um, was, in some respects, by the time I got to to the to seriously thinking about the third book. I knew it was going to be easier in some regards because with the with the first two books you're setting a lot of cats loose you know you're trying to get <laughs> ideas out yeah um, you're trying to come up with a lot of cool stuff and the third book your main obligation is to tidy up <laughs> the wreckage of the first two books in you know simply now but I, I thought well I with the third book um, I don't the one thing I don't have to worry about with the third book is planting the seeds for the fourth book because there is no fourth book. So I don't have to worry about where the story projects beyond the third book. And that, that's, that's a good thing. That's a large burden of, mm. of creativity that you don't have to think about anymore. You're not, you're not thinking, oh, God, I, got, I need to make sure that's foreshadowed and, and, you know, and, and that's going to come in because I might need that in the next book. No, you don't have to worry about any of that. You're free of that. But at the same time, you do have to, A, round off the story threads of the previous books in an artistically satisfying fashion. But also, you, you do want to get a load of new stuff into the third book. It's not just a sort of sterile exercise in sort of tying off a few plot threads. So, but I, I thought, that's okay. That's what I, I wanted to write this trilogy because I wanted to get to the third book. So I looked on that as a, as a good thing. And uh, I kind of, I kind of knew, I mean, there's, there's a natural rhythm. In the, the first book is set in the solar system. The second book involves traveling from the solar system to an, another star. It's pretty obvious to me that the third book was going to involve moving further out into the galaxy. You know, we get real interstellar travel, different solar systems. Interstellar travel is becoming more commonplace in the, in the third book. And I, you know, so I didn't really have to think um, about the scope. That, that was clear. And I also felt... Um, so you got your magnified scope, but just in a different aspect. I got my magnified scope. I knew that there's this subplot running through the three books about the elephants. So in the first book, we find out about um, the way that there have been some genetic experiments on elephants 
on the moon. I love. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then that feeds into the second book, um, and you know the elephants play a role in the second book, and that was pointing towards a combination in the third book, which I always felt was the way it had to go. So I knew there was going to be elephants in the third book, and we're going to find out about the alien intelligences behind the the, the structure on on the surface of this planet. We'll find out all about them. Um, and we'll, you know, there's a few other sort of alien sort of mysteries in the mix there as well that will be uh, not, you know, not not entirely resolved because I think it's a very very bad thing to answer all the questions. I think you should leave some mysteries, even though it infuriates some readers. But, but they they don't know. They realize they, they they don't realize they're far better off not knowing everything. <laughs> <laughs> now, having uh, I, I'm wondering now from the perspective of being, you know. Uh, Having written the third book, yeah. looking back over the first two books, how much of what you set out to do in the first book, um, once you kind of knew firmly where it was going, did you end up accomplishing in the third book? And, and oh, not, I don't know, maybe 30%. I don't know, it's, some, <laughs> it's somewhere down there. Um, do, you, do you know Powell and Pressburger, the filmmakers? They did uh, The Red Shoes mm -hmm. and... Um, um, What's that famous one? <laughs> the one about the Spitfire pilot. Um, they, their films, um, I Know Where I'm Going, uh, Canterbury Tales, all those films, they, their production company was The Archers. And supposedly, at the start of all the, the Archers films, you see an arrow go into, uh, in, into an archery target. And supposedly, how far from the bullseye the arrow goes is how far they are from making the film they thought they were going to make. You know, that's, that, you know they, they had the intentions when they went into it, but they, you know, they, they, they seldom hit the bullseye. And that's, that's art. That's the nature of art. You, you, you have a grand edifice in mind when you start writing something, uh, or at least thinking about writing something. But it's, it's real life. You, you, it's art meets creativity meets commerce. And slowly your edifice crumbles and you're left with <laughs> you're left with something that hopefully you're proud of but you know it's not the shining you know uh, xanadu of your imagination at the start of the book well this you know there's things that i would you know with the benefit of written having written two novels after blue remembered earth there's things i'd go back and change in blue remembered earth um but uh, but you just it's part of the game that you you, you must live with what you've done well, also, I would uh, assume uh, that you've also accomplished a lot that you never even imagined accomplishing when you started out the first book as well. Yes. Um, well, you kind of, I think it's, I mean, I like hill walking. And, and one of the things I always forget is how bloody hard it is slogging up hills. <laughs> you forget it. Every time you do it, you think, oh, I've forgotten how hard this was. Why? Well, if you didn't, if you didn't forget how hard it was, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning and do it. And it's the same with writing a novel. Every time I write a novel, I think, ah, oh, I've forgotten how much work it is writing a novel. I should remember this. I've written 13 of them. Why, why is it always a surprise to me that they're really hard work? I don't know. I think it's just, um, you know, a deliberate form of amnesia that you, <laughs> you sort of gloss over how much work is involved in writing a book. And to write a trilogy is insane. Yeah. It's a good kind of insanity. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading the third <laughs> yeah. book. I've been speaking with Alistair Reynolds. His newest novel is On the Steel Breeze. Thanks for speaking with me, Al. Thank you, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.